Now, last week, we were beginning our study of the seven churches in Revelation, and we noted, I think, that John, as he is there in this concentration camp on the island of Patmos, a very, very old man by now, some think that maybe he's maybe almost 100 years old. John the Apostle, the last of the disciples of Jesus to walk the earth, appears as though he's going to die in the prison camp. History tells us that, in fact, he was released and was able to go back to his people and complete his work, and by completing his work, complete the New Testament because he was able to write down the book of Revelation for us. The Gospels and the letters perhaps had already been produced. But in that first few verses that we looked at last week, we saw this amazing and almost breathtaking picture of the ascended, the risen, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And there we saw the various characteristics of the ascended Christ brought to us in imagery, the imagery of the Bible, that was just compelling and beautiful and captivating. But among all of those, among all of those symbols of who he is, the, the whiteness of his purity, the goldness of his majesty, the, the, the fire of, of his holiness, the thing that comes home to us most distinctly is that the one characteristic of the risen, glorified Lord is that his voice is just remarkable. Each of the, each of the characteristics of Jesus are given to us and yet his voice is brought to us in three and not one image. His voice is a trumpet. His voice is a sword. His voice is a waterfall. And of course, we considered why it was that the voice of Jesus was so, was so zeroed in on, so focused in on by John. But then when we read these letters, we realize that each letter, each postcard from heaven to each of these churches within this region of Asia Minor, each of those letters concludes with these words, he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus today wants us to attend to his voice more than anything. He wants us to listen carefully. He wants us to be using all of our capacity to attend to his voice. So as we read these words and as we ask God to expound the meaning of them, let's be conscious of doing that as we read. Revelation chapter two and verse one to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars 
in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's look at a report card. Let's look at the report card for this church. Jesus offers his observation. This is, as I said last week, the only place in the Bible where Jesus specifically looks at churches that bear his name and he tells us what it is that he wants and what it is that he doesn't want. So he's, he's very excited about this church and their hard work. They get an A for that. Jesus wants his churches to, to have people in it that work hard for the gospel. He wants churches that persevere, especially in the face of persecution. These were churches that were, that were being persecuted by the Roman authorities and by the people in general. They get an A for that. Theological knowledge, they've tested people who claim to be apostolic teachers. They've tested them, found them false. So this is, this is a church that has a real emphasis on teaching and expository understandings of the scripture and they get an A for that. And then love for Jesus. Love for Jesus, they get a D. Which unfortunately stands for death. Because when Jesus is weighing up all of the good things against the things that he doesn't want. And he considers whether to remove the witness of this church. Whether he should remove the church. Is it going to be yes or is it going to be no? Then he says, I think I'm going to remove this church. Kind of shocking, isn't it? I mean, this is a church full of people who are working hard, persevering in the face of persecution, who have really good theological knowledge. They're well-trained, well-taught. And yet, Jesus is not prepared to endorse the ministry of this church. He's not prepared to back it up. He, he doesn't want this church as a witness for him. However the right, however correct, however hardworking and persevering they happen to be. It's kind of troubling. Perhaps by looking at the scriptures, we'll understand what it is 
that the Lord is saying to us, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. It's interesting, isn't it? At the very beginning, when we read last week, at the end of the, the revelation that, that John has of Jesus resplendent in all his glory, Jesus reveals the mystery of the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. He says this in verse 20 of chapter one, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus holds in his hand the angel of each church. Now, uh, commentators who have poured over this for centuries are somewhat conflicted as to what it is that's meant by the word angel. Because of course, what we have here in the book of Revelation is a drawing back of the veil to allow us to see not only the physical world, but the spiritual world that lies just beyond the reach of physical flesh. And yet here in this last book of the Bible, we get that veil drawn back so that we can see the world more completely, the way that it's seen from heaven. And so is Jesus speaking about angelic beings that stand over each church as a representative for Apex, Dayton? Or is it a more oblique reference to the meaning of the word angel, which is messenger? And is it referring to the leader of that church, the human leader of that church, who is God's messenger to that congregation? Well, perhaps, and here, those who've poured over the text perhaps can converge by saying, most certainly what it is that Jesus is holding in his hand and who he is addressing are those that carry the voice of this church. They carry the voice of the church. It's an awesome role it's a role to be held with incredible reverence because, because that is something that Jesus holds in his very hand. I was saying to the first service, when the Lord called Sally and I here, it was a very interesting experience for me because um, I had an awful lot going on. You know, I've got kind of stuff to do and you know, books to write and blah, 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 you know. And then the Lord says, so, there's this place called Dayton. And there's a flock there called Apex. And you know what? He didn't mention the, um, the medical program or the compensation he didn't mention the Art Institute or the Schuster. He didn't, he didn't mention the um, amazing aircraft museum that I was at yesterday. He, he didn't mention the history of Dayton, the culture of Dayton, the fact that 
When Sally and I got here, it would feel like home because it's like a northern city in England. He didn't mention any of that. That was all cream on the cake. This is what Jesus said to me. Do you love me more than all of this other stuff? The books and the this and the that and the... Do you love me more than that? And he said, well, take care of my sheep. You see, it doesn't matter where we are or who we are in the body. The thing that Jesus is most interested in is his first priority. He calls Peter back to the role of leading the apostles. He doesn't mention the, the denial and the betrayal. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't deal with any of the particularities that you would think are necessary to go through for a leader who's going to be the leader of the world's most important movement. He just simply asks Peter, do you love me? That's how important it is to Jesus. What happened? What happened to this church? He goes on to say, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. He knows this church. He, he knows how the church was planted. Ephesus was this amazing city. It was a city of at least 250,000 souls. A giant city for its time. One of the great cities of the world. One of the great educational centres of the world. One of the great medical centres for the world. One of the great religious centres for the world. It had the largest building in the world that was the Temple of Diana. It was an amazing place. And clearly when Paul was on his second missionary journey, he wanted to get to Ephesus. There are different geographical terms that are used in the Bible to what we use now. We are referring, of course, to an area called Turkey today. In those days, that whole area of mainland Turkey was called Asia Minor, and the little region around Ephesus was called Asia. Kind of weird for us, counterintuitive. It says in, it says in the Acts of the Apostles that, that Paul was making for the region of Asia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And so he went rather on a journey into Europe through Greece, down into Corinth. The Lord met him and encouraged him and sent him on his way. And as he was completing his second missionary journey, he was returning to Jerusalem to complete a vow before the Lord and then to his home church of Antioch. He stayed in Ephesus just a few days left a member, a couple of members of his team, Priscilla and Aquila, to continue the work there because it was quite obvious that this was a key strategic place in the kingdom. A place because they listened to the words of Jesus that became the most important church for the next 400 years of the church's history. Because they attended to the voice of Jesus. But it was in the balance in the time of John. Paul went back at the beginning of his third missionary journey and planted an amazing church. There were, 
there were miracles there in, in Ephesus that are the only place in the Bible where the word extraordinary is connected to the word miracle. Acts chapter 19 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul in this place. I mean, a miracle is usually enough, isn't it? But here in this one place, this one location in all of God's economy, there's one place where miracles are extraordinary. And that's Ephesus. And here in Ephesus, we see this amazing church built up. And the church is built, Paul says in Acts 20, 20, he's talking to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way to Jerusalem. He says, you've seen my ministry. I've not, I've not shrunk back from preaching to you the whole counsel of God. And you've seen me do it in public and from house to house. You see, the church of Ephesus was built around a gathering and house churches. Ring any bells. The hall of Tyrannus during the lunch break was rented by Paul. They had long lunch breaks in those days. They were the siesta hours between 12 noon and four o'clock in the afternoon. And there in the hall of Tyrannus, the, the professor who was called the tyrant, he obviously wasn't working between 12 and four. And so, and so he rented his, his lecture theatre, no doubt with theatre-like seating. And there Paul taught the disciples. And during that time, the whole region is evangelized. It says, and during this time, the whole region came under the sound of the gospel. Paul tells us when he's writing to the Colossian church that they were planted during this time. He said, I've never seen you, but I've sent to you Epaphras, my representative. Colossians chapter one, verse seven says that. And so perhaps during the time that Paul is there, all of the seven churches and maybe a couple of others are planted. And at the very heart of them is the beating heart of mission, the church in Ephesus. This is an apostolic church. This is the church that Timothy is sent to by Paul. This is the church that John arrives at once Timothy has gone. And John arrives with the mother of Jesus. She's buried in Ephesus. She came as an ancient, ancient old lady and died very soon after John brought her there. But you remember from Good Friday, those of you who are here, that Jesus said to John, this is your mother and mother, this is your, this is your son. And from that point on, he took her into, a, into his household. And so she went with him even to Ephesus. And so today you can go to Mary's grave. This is a place of incredible spiritual privilege. And yet, Jesus says, for all of this apostolic foundation, for all of your history of hard work, for all of the record of perseverance, I'm going to remove your lampstand. How could it have ever got to that state? Well, it's interesting when you look at the city of Ephesus itself. 
I've, I've been to Ephesus. It's a ruin today, one of the great ruins of the ancient world. When you go to Ephesus today, something's quite interesting about it. You see, Ephesus was a coastal city that had an economy based upon a harbour. It was a trading city. And there was a river flowing through it called the Caister River. It still exists. But the Caister River was silting up gradually. The Romans, they tried to dredge it. They tried to put, they tried to put groins across the river to stop the sedimentation. But little by little, slowly but surely, the river was choked and the city died. Today, if you go to Ephesus, it's literally five miles from the sea and there's no river there anymore. Like a human heart, the arteries of the city were being clogged up. Like a human heart that is struggling to beat against the flow of silted up arteries, the city finally died. You see, hard work and perseverance and theological knowledge are good things. I've got three theological degrees. I teach in seminaries all over the world and I'm currently doing postgraduate research at Trinity. But it's not the most important thing. Jesus didn't mention any of that when he called me to Apex. He didn't say, now there's some people over there you need to train them up, Mike. All those degrees will help. No mention of that. All of these things, if they become the priority, will kill us. The thing that keeps us alive is the love of Jesus. One thing I'm interested in, says Jesus. One thing I hold against you. One thing I want you to attend to. One thing, you can keep all of the other things. They're great, but one thing I want you to do. And it's so important that if you don't do it, I can't keep you alive. I have to remove you. And the one thing is this. The one thing that you have forsaken is your first love. So what's it like to lose your first love? Well, John is an amazing New Testament writer. As you know, he, he gave us the gospel of John. He gave us revelation. And of course, he gave us the letters that he wrote to the same churches that are being addressed here in the book of Revelation. 
And in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, he gives us chapter and verse literally on how we are to understand the nature and the working of love. He says this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now what John is saying in this chapter and throughout the whole of the book is this, God loves us and because he first loves us, he he makes it possible for us to love him. And when we see his love for us in the Lord Jesus and all that the Lord Jesus did for us, of course, our hearts are turned to love him. And so we love him because he first loved us. But because we love him, his love is flowing to us and through us. And his love is made complete. We get a full picture of his love as his love works through you and me. And so when the love of Jesus is not the first thing in our life, then it's hard for people to see God among us. Because they see God among us because the love of God is working in us. Let's put that slide up, shall we? So forsaken love means that we fall from that complete picture of love. What else? Well, if we, if we drift from our place of saying that my love for Jesus is the most crucial and important thing in my life, something happens in our heart that we perhaps never expect. John talks about it in this same chapter in verse 18. Fear begins to grow in our hearts. Now the Bible will generally use fear for a whole bunch of things that we've tended to rebrand in the 21st century. You know, we've rebranded fear as stress, anxiety, responsibility. I mean, it's amazing how many times we as parents, for instance, are just fooling ourselves into being saying that we're responsible for our children and grandchildren when actually we're just afraid. Yeah, I mean, it's just, let's be honest. Isn't that true? Well, it's true for me. I mean, I don't know about it is with you, but you see what I mean? I mean, we just rebrand it. We say, well, you know, I'm just being responsible. Maybe, maybe you're just being afraid. Fear is a terrible bedfellow because it keeps you awake all night, makes you weary in the morning, makes it impossible for you to focus on the day, means that you, you never connect with people around you, means that you, you never really enjoy the blessings of this life because they've always got this bitter taste of fear underneath them. And there's only one thing that will deal with fear. John tells us, 
Perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love. Where would we find perfect love? Only in Jesus. You see, Jesus is telling us this morning that he wants us to attend to his words because he doesn't want us to live in this incomplete experience of never knowing the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want us to live in this incomplete experience of always finding fear lurking in our hearts. He doesn't want that for us. Rather, he wants his love that we place first in our life to fill our hearts and drive away the fear. Do you remember when you were first saved? You didn't worry about anything. And you say, well, you know, maybe it's because I was just immature. Or maybe it's because you love Jesus more than you do now. And there aren't other things in the way. Fear. Only you know whether there's fear in your heart. And if there's fear today, there's only one solution for it. You can pay therapists for many years to help you. Or you can hear the words of Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear. So, forsaken love produces that incomplete experience of God's presence. It, it allows fear to, to grip our hearts. It produces frustration. Because here's the thing, the reason that our first love is not Jesus is because our first love has become something else. Yeah? Does that make sense? So, you know, our love for Jesus is now the second love. And there's a first love that's something else. And because we've decided that we're going to love something more than Jesus, as the first thing in our life, our wife, our children, our car, our future, our ambition, whatever it is, we've decided that we're in charge. And the word that defines that is pride. And this is what the Bible says. Peter writes it to us in chapter five of his first letter and verse five. Peter says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wonder whether the Ephesian church were proud of their hard work. I wonder whether they were proud of their perseverance. I wonder whether they were proud of their theological knowledge. You know, you can be frustrated because God's saying, wait. You can be frustrated because the devil is opposing you. But it's a terrible thing to be frustrated because God's hand is holding you back. I don't think there's anything worse in all the universe than to be opposed by God. And God opposes the proud. And so pride is something that is the manifestation of us placing something more important than the love of Jesus in our lives. And no doubt, 
it'll lead to frustration. And then finally, of course, John goes on to articulate it so clearly in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so fractured relationships are the result of a life not surrendered to the love of Jesus. Of course, that's what happens. So how then, how then should we respond? Well, we have to respond with honesty. We have to respond with absolute determination this morning. We have to respond this morning by saying, I'm not going to let any embarrassment, I'm not going to let any, any attitude or approval of someone else get in the way of me saying that Jesus is my first love. Some of you may notice that me and Sally are a bit weird in our worship. You know, we kind of raise our hands and do, you don't have to do that. Do you know our testimony for that? See, I'm English. I don't know whether you've noticed that. And we, we have this kind of weird uptightness. We don't know where it came from, but we kind of get it with our mother's milk. And we're just raised, just uptight. And so, you know, we don't do stuff like that. And I can remember I'd, I'd been ordained a while and the Lord just said to me, I, I want you to raise your hands in worship. And I said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and the Lord said, it's not Satan, you idiot, it's me. <laughs> and I said, come on, Lord, I'm English. What are you talking about? I'm a clergyman in the Church of England. I can't possibly do that. And he said, okay. And you know, when he says, okay, like that, and you think, uh, I'm not sure what the next bit could be. And I went, all right, then how about this? No, no, not enough. What about that? No. What about this? He said, just raise your hands. It was so hard because it was embarrassing. Now, I don't know, that's not your thing, it's my thing. I'm just, you know, doing some therapy here. <laughs> I, I don't know what your thing is, but there's gonna be something that might just be that little stumbling place for you that prevents you from genuinely saying, you know what, I don't care what people think. I'm all in with Jesus. What happens when forsaken love is refound? I think we have just the last little slide here. You see, the love of Jesus coursing through us 
coursing to us and through us means that we have a much higher level of sensitivity to him and to the people around us. And it produces a kind of gentleness that is beguiling and attractive. There is a gentle power in the love of Jesus that you see in people who love him. And that sensitivity will increase in your life. If you, if you want to be hearing him more closely, if you want to be hearing him more clearly, then just get your heart aligned with him and get him in the first place in your heart and you'll be so much more sensitive to his voice. Secondly, you'll find that serving is, is not an irksome thing anymore. We were just talking at staff meeting this last week and I was remonstrating with the use of the word volunteer, which I hate with a perfect hatred. Because if you're volunteering, it's not yours. I don't volunteer to make Sally a cup of tea in the morning. I do it because I'm her husband. I don't volunteer to feed the dog. I do it because he's my dog. I don't volunteer to kind of clear up after myself in that. It's my house. We really don't want you to volunteer. We want you to belong. But here's the thing. It's so much harder to serve when the love of Jesus is not the first thing in your life. It's just really hard to serve. And of course, you want to sign up for VBS. Of course you do. It may be impossible because of work and all of that kind of thing, but you want to. I was literally, I was sitting there this morning thinking, I don't know, maybe I could do that, I don't know. And then finally, it's so much easier to give when you know how much you've been given. I totally get it, you know, that churches that go through difficult times, the congregation go, I, don't, I, mean, I mean, what am I, what am I contributing towards? I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, so I totally get that. I totally understand if, if you're a person who said, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Completely understand that. And honestly, I'm not interested in whether you give or how much you give. What I'm interested in is whether you see victory in your life. And you know how you get victory? Through surrender. And you know what's often the place where we find it most difficult to surrender? The things that we count to be most valuable our money and our possessions. It's really interesting, isn't it? But if the love of Jesus is filling our hearts because we know that he's loved us and so we love him and his love is in us and through us, giving means almost nothing in comparison with what we've received. And so there are no problems for the missionaries 
in Iraq or the Oregon district or wherever it is that those missionaries happen to be. So as you can see, it's a fairly light word to get the seven churches going. No challenge involved there then. The question for us this morning is just simply this. Do we want to hear the invitation of Jesus to come walk with him in the cool of the day? At the end of the letter, he says, to those who overcome, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The word paradise is is taken from the world in which we find Iraq today. It's an old Semitic word that means probably this, the walled garden of the king. Do you remember at the very beginning, God in the cool of the day would walk in the garden calling to his loved ones, Adam and Eve. Jesus is saying, do you know what I want more than anything? Is I just want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I want you to receive the life in all its abundance that I have for you. And you're the other side of the wall because you've got other things to do that are more important than my love. But I want you here. And I want you with me. I love that about Jesus, don't you? That that's what he wants more than anything. So we have communion today, but as we move into our time of communion, if this word is for you today, and you know that maybe some other things have crept into the place where your first love once stood and you know that you can spot the symptoms of that incompleteness that fear those other things that we talked about this if you if you know that today then then don't hold back make today a special day and I'd invite you to come and join me here as I move from the sermon into communion But come and stand with me and we'll pray together and we'll pray about our first love as we we consider the things that Jesus has spoken to us. And if you need to come from way up there, then start now and uh, we'll join you at the front here. Come and join us.